I don't like to normally do this, but I am going to do it this morning, and that is I'm going to shock you all. And the way I'm going to shock you all is to uh, remind you of something that's there in the back of your mind lurking that you don't want to think about. And that is that Christmas is only two months away. Yes, that's indeed true. Christmas is only two months away. And with Christmas, the Christmas season, comes the frenzy of gift buying and gift giving. Isn't that true? There are many of us who find in that custom a tremendous amount of stress. And one of the ways that stress comes about is deciding whether to buy a gift for someone who lies outside of your immediate family circle. Isn't that true? Do I get them a gift or don't? Did they get me one last year? And you go through this mental exercise. I know you do. And some of you, you kind of play the strategy of waiting to the last minute. Are they going to give me one? If they give me one... Then custom tells me that I've got to do what? I must return it. Maybe I'll buy two or three generic ones early and hold on to them. Or I can change the tag. Maybe I'll re-gift something. All kinds of strategies people adopt to try to deal with this issue. There's something in us that just doesn't like to receive something for nothing. Isn't that true? We, w- we want to make sure that things are fair and balanced. Well, that's not just true with the custom of Christmas gift giving. It's true in a much larger and more profound way when it comes to the issue of being made right with God. Let me read you a quote from uh, someone I read this week, a very fine Bible commentator, and he says the following. Quote, one of fallen humanity's most difficult tasks is to accept righteousness as a gift. With every fiber of their moral being, people want to earn God's favor. From a human perspective, this sounds both reasonable and noble. The hidden agenda, however, is that it would provide a basis for boasting. God neither needs nor desires our help in doing what we could never accomplish. Truer words are never spoken. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, please. You're using a pew Bible this morning. We're on page 1128 of that pew Bible. Looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. In the process of doing this, we're, we're drawing out uh, six aspects of true righteousness that together comprise the heart of the gospel so that we will understand what God has done and how it saves us. We have looked in this text in the prior couple of weeks and noted three of those aspects. We're going to add one more this morning. But we noted just by way of review that true righteousness comes, verse 21, from God. Secondly, the true righteousness comes through faith, the beginning part of verse 22. 
Last week, we noted in the second half of verse 22 and verse 23 that true righteousness comes for all. That is, that it is available to all kinds of people, the glory of God. And this morning, the fourth aspect, that true righteousness comes by grace. Verse 24. Let me just read the text and then let's spend some time looking at verse 24 together. Paul says, verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Six aspects of true righteousness that are drawn out of this passage. True righteousness comes from God. It comes through faith. It comes for all. And it comes by grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. Now, two weeks ago, we spent a little time looking at this word justify, justification. And I want to just review that with you a little bit. But we, we defined it for you in a, in a simple way as saying acquittal. That it means acquittal. And it does mean that. It means more than that. But acquittal is a good handle to begin to place around this. Because it recognizes the inherent legal nature of, of the term justify justification. It is a legal term. It is a term that belongs in a law court. And that's exactly what it means. To be justified is to be declared right or righteous. To be declared right or righteous. It is a declaration that is made by a judge. And it is not simply a legal fiction. And what I mean by that is it's, it's not declaring something as true that's not true. That would be a legal fiction. It is a legal reality of the utmost significance. Okay? It is a legal reality. When God declares or justifies a sinner, He makes a legal declaration about that person that says that all of the demands of the law that are laid against that person have been fulfilled through the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed or attributed to that person. Okay? What he's saying is that that person is acquitted. That, purchase, that person has been declared righteous because not of what they are in of themselves, but what someone has done for them. That is, Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 is a key text that speaks about this transaction where Paul says there that he that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Okay? God has done something legally on behalf of His people. What that means is from that point forward, whenever God sees the sinner, when He sees you and me, He sees us in a legal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed or attributed to us. That is, it becomes legally ours. And all of the guilt for all of our sin becomes legally that of Jesus Christ where it was punished. We are wrapped, if you like the illustration, we are wrapped in a robe of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That which we could not earn where Paul says in verse 20, right? That which we could not earn has now come to us by declaration of God. A legal transaction has occurred. Our legal standing before God has been changed. That's why I say it's not a fiction. It's a reality. Our legal standing before God, before the judge of all the universe, has been changed, and it has changed the moment... We place our faith in Jesus Christ. Something dramatic has happened. Now, sanctification, just to kind of bring that alongside only momentarily, sanctification, the process of being made like Jesus Christ, is a gradual process whereby we are transformed to become like Christ so that we possess in the day-to-day workings of life the righteousness that has been legally given to us at the moment of salvation. Because justification is a legal transaction, it is the opposite of another legal transaction, which is called condemnation. Okay? It is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is the state in which a person is guilty and declared such by a judge, convicted of that guilt. They then lie condemned. Okay? That's the opposite of being justified. In both cases, it's a pronouncement that is made by a judge. In a Christian context, justification and condemnation are really alternative verdicts that God, um, as the final judge, will pronounce upon each and every person. At the end of the age... The final judgment will be made on everybody's life and God, our Creator, is the one who pronounces that judgment. But what He has done is that He has, in the justification of a sinner, He has anticipated His final pronouncement and He has brought it forward in time to the moment we are united with Jesus Christ. At the end of the age, when you will stand before your judge, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be acquitted. And what God has done is He has brought that verdict forward in time so that it is now yours today. You don't have to wait until then. That's huge. That is huge to stand acquitted today and not have to wait until the end. People get confused. People get confused in this area and it's it's important that we rightly understand it because this is the basis by which we stand before God. So it's important that we think clearly and sharply with regard to this topic. 
Some people confuse the concept of pardon with justification. And so we need to define the difference there. Because there's a, a pardon and being justified are really not the same idea. They are two separate ideas, two separate realities. A, a pardon is a negative concept. Okay? To be pardoned is kind of a negative concept. It is, the, it is the cancellation of a penalty or a debt. When you are pardoned, you have a debt or a penalty that you owe and it has been canceled for you. Okay? That's a pardon. Justification is a positive idea. It is a declaration that there is no ground left upon which to inflict punishment. You see the difference? One is that you lie guilty, okay, but we're not going to impose the penalty. That's a pardon. Justification says that there's no ground left for you to be punished under. It has been taken away. You have been declared righteous. Not made righteous. Declared righteous. It is a legal concept. The theologians call it forensic justification. If you read any kind of theological standard, theological work, you will arrive at a term called forensic justification. Well, forensics just means having to do with the law, right? We talk about uh, forensic science. That is, scientists who, who do their work in support of the law that are investigating a criminal event or something like that, okay? So this is forensic justification. This is legal justification. This is the only kind of justification that will make you stand before your judge, his declaration on your life. Notice what Paul says here in verse 24 now. He uses a participle, there's a, the idea of a verbal noun. He says we are being justified, being justified as a gift by his grace. And it's kind of an, an abrupt change here if you look at the end of verse 23 for all of sin fall short of the glory being justified is a gift by his grace the text doesn't seem to flow real well and the reason for that i think is that the end of verse 22 verse 23 is really a parenthetical thought that breaks the flow a little bit and that really the idea is that those who are being justified refers back to the beginning part of verse 22 that is those who believe those who are believe are the ones being justified. That's what he's talking about. All the world is under sin. All of the world falls short of the glory of God. But only those who believe are the ones that are being justified. Okay. What that does is that places this, con this concept of justification into a direct sequence with God's work through Jesus Christ or, or, or that is available to us through Jesus Christ, the beginning part of verse 22, right? The righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe are the justified ones. So he's tying it together here that it is the only means by which we can achieve the legal declaration of our justification, of our acquittal, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. What that means is that we can learn a couple things about the righteousness of God. Okay. Number one, what we can learn is that the righteousness of God is our justification. It is the righteousness of God that is our justification. It is that which 
enables us to be declared not guilty. In contrast to the impossibility of finding that justification through our own self-effort, which is what Paul begins in verse 20, right? You cannot be, no flesh will be justified, verse 20, in his sight through law-keeping. You can't get it through law-keeping, through your own self-effort. Instead, it must come to you from God. From God. The second thing we learn is that it is a gift of God by grace to those who believe. Verse 24 again, we are justified, being justified as a gift by His grace. This whole uh, standing of justification before God comes to us from the outside. It does not come from the inside. It is not a result of our self-effort. It comes from the outside. God applying it to us. Said this way over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know it, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It comes to us as a gift. Justification is a gift. It is a gift of God. Verse 24 again. We are justified as a gift by His grace. What is grace? What is the grace of God? Well, it refers in its essence to God's undeserved love and kindness towards someone who is guilty. Okay? Towards a guilty person, they receive God's undeserved love and kindness. In its essence, that's what grace is. Mercy, just to contrast that, mercy is God's uh, undeserved love and kindness towards someone who is in misery. Towards someone in misery. If you ask God to be merciful to someone, you're asking Him to extend these things to a person who is in a miserable circumstance or situation. We can pray for God's mercy for Dan and Lillian Hubiar as their as their Every article of clothing is infested with these skin mites that are eating them alive, okay? We would ask for God's mercy to them. They're in a miserable situation. The grace of God is towards someone who stands in a legally guilty position. It comes as a gift. Verse 24. It comes as a gift. The Greek word doria, which is translated gift here, it literally means for no reason. Okay, for no reason. The word is used in John chapter 15, verse 25. Jesus uses it and it says they hated me without cause. Doria, without cause for no reason. Christ says I was hated. So let's just kind of move that concept back into verse 24. Being justified for no reason by his grace. Being justified for no reason without cause by his grace. What's he talking about? He's talking about that there is no reason that lies within you. There is no cause that lies within you for God to do this, to justify you. That is, it is a gift. When someone gives you a gift, they are giving you something for no reason or without cause. That is, there's nothing that you have done to give them a gift, which, by the way, really would play out well at Christmas time, wouldn't it? Okay? You don't have to give a gift to somebody who gives you a gift. Because if they give you a gift and you give them one back accordingly, then it's no longer a gift. It's a payment of an obligation. 
Okay, just put that one in your thinking and I've just liberated your consciences and I've narrowed your Christmas list. Okay, it's not a gift if it's obligated. All right, so God has given us a gift. He's given us a gift. And there is no element of the biblical doctrine of justification that is more significant than this. You've got to get a hold of this one. You've got to grab a hold of this one. The justification comes as a gift by His grace. That is, it comes because of no reason or cause within you. There is nothing within you that, that constrains or compels or entices God to justify you. Do you understand that? Nothing. Nothing. Not a single thing. Not to any extent. Not to any degree. Nothing that you are, nothing that you will ever be, in any way, grants you favor before God. Makes God your debtor. Obliges God to justify you. It is a gift without cause within you. That's huge. You cannot predispose God to act on your behalf. All that you are, all that you have ever done, all that you will ever do, inclines God to one thing. That is to condemn you eternally in hell. Okay? If you want fairness from God, if you want justice from God, what you are asking for is to be consigned for an eternity to the lake of fire. You do not want justice. Okay? Don't ever ask God for justice. You are asking God for grace to give you something you do not deserve. You want His grace. This concept's not new, by the way, with the Apostle Paul. Okay? This is how God operates. This is how God has always operated. What mankind deserves is damnation. What God grants for some is salvation. The prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price, the prophet says. It's a gift. It's available. The gift is there. Take it. Take it by faith. We can illustrate this whole concept of justification by grace through faith. I think it's really well illustrated. If you'll turn back to the left with me to John chapter 3. Okay? John chapter 3. For God so loved the whole world, right? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, verse 16. We all know that. But what we need to do is see the couple of verses before that. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? 
What is he talking about? He's referring back to that weird and somewhat obscure event in the life of the nation of Israel when they were grumbling in the wilderness. You remember this? And God sent fiery serpents among them to bite them and, and, and afflict them and strike them dead. And thousands died in the wilderness. And God instructed Moses to make a serpent, an image or a replica of a serpent out of bronze and to put it on a pole and to stick it in the middle of the camp. And he said that everyone who would look upon the serpent, the, the, the um, statue of the serpent, the, the, um, the, the replica of the serpent, would be saved. And those who looked were saved. They were delivered. And those who didn't perished. Now, what in the world is that all about? The only way to survive is to look upon a foolish uh, image of a bronze serpent. And Jesus says, just like that, whoever looks on me shall be saved. I don't know about you, but I can imagine being an Israelite and being bitten by a fiery serpent and know I'm dying. And I can also imagine being told that if all I'll do is look upon this bronze uh, replica of a serpent on a pole, then I'll be saved and thinking to myself, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. That, that is ridiculous to look upon that and that's going to save me. Only with eyes of faith that it will come by grace, Right. By grace, there's no power in the bronze serpent itself. It is the grace of God that is available to you as a gift if you will but by faith look upon it to receive it. Jesus says, I'm the same way. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're separated from the life of God. You're alienated from Him. And the Bible says that your relationship with Him can be restored and your sin problem dealt with if you will but look by fit with faith upon a crucified Messiah. And you say, that's stupid. That's foolishness. That's the Jew would say a stumbling block. And the Greek would say, that's ridiculous. How can the King of the universe die on a pole? And how can looking in faith upon that spectacle possibly make me right with my Creator. I won't do it. And millions and millions of people do not look with eyes of faith. It has always been that way. The grace of God is a gift without cause within ourselves, available to us through those if we will look with faith upon the resurrected One. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why God saved you? Has that thought ever gone through your mind? Anybody besides me? Has it ever gone through your mind? Why did God save me? The answer is, you ready for the answer? If you've ever wondered this, I have the answer for you. The answer is that because in the secret counsel of a sovereign God, He chose to do so. That's it. That's the answer. Because God decided to save you for no other reason. Certainly not for anything that lies within you. In the sovereign good pleasure of God, He chose to save you. Someone once said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our need for it. 
I thought that was pretty good. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our need for it. Justification by grace is a gift. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.24. It is a gift. It is free. But it's not cheap. It's not cheap. It cost the life of the very Son of God Himself. And that's what the rest of the verse says, right? We are justified by, as a gift, by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Salvation is free this morning, but it is not cheap. The root meaning of the word redemption that you see here in verse 24, through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, apolotrosis in the Greek, and it has the idea of a ransom, a ransom that is, that is made by payment of a price. Okay? It is a ransom that is achieved by the payment of a price. This concept stretches back into ancient Israel. There in ancient Israel, when a, when a man would get so far in debt, so over his head in, in obligations to creditors that he could not pay, that man could sell himself into slavery to his creditors and work for them to pay off the debt that he owed. It's also possible that one of his family members could be taken by the creditor as a slave and work some number of years until that debt was paid off. And of course, they had the year of Jubilee that came every 50 years to, to release all the captives and so forth. But the concept of being in debt and then going into slavery in order to or satisfy that obligation was very much part of the ethos of Israel. They understood it. When a person or a man, let's just say, has sold himself into slavery because of his obligations, when he has a close relative of means, that person was called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. That kinsman redeemer could, and oftentimes, and it depends on relationships and so forth, was obligated to redeem that person back from slavery by paying the man's bills, by paying off the debts. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, the same word apolutrosis is used to speak of that redemption process of those that have been sold into slavery. In the Greek world of the first century in which Paul is writing, when two armies would wage war and they would capture prisoners of war, commonly what was done in antiquity is you would execute the prisoners. Okay? You'd bring them back to your home city. And if you were Assyrians, you would execute them all and then you'd dismember them and you'd stack heads in one pile and arms in another and legs in another. And so that everyone could see that when you mess with Assyrians, you get chopped up. Okay? But somewhere along the line, they thought it would be a little more lucrative rather than just execute the prisoners of war to take them as slaves and then offer them to be sold back to their home country. So if you were captured as a prisoner of war, you were, instead of being executed, you were sold into slavery. And you could be purchased back. If your family had means, they would pay a certain redemption price, a ransom, if you will, and you would be then released. Same term. 
Same term. So when Paul here is talking about that we are justified as a gift by His grace, verse 24, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, that is through the ransom, that is through the payment of a ransom price, we are released from slavery. What kind of slavery are we in? We are in bondage to sin. We are slaves of sin. Jesus said, Mark 10, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life, what? A ransom for many. Okay? The death of Jesus Christ was a payment of a penalty that His people owe God for their sin. He pays it for us. And you just think about this. The God-man Jesus Christ... He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our close relative. He is a one of means who can come and purchase us back. And that's what He has done. When He died on that cross, in one decisive, definitive act, He secured the redemption for all of His people for all time. He made the payment price. Next week we'll look at what was involved in doing that when it talks about a propitiation in His blood. Okay? We'll talk about just what it is He did and how He paid it. But that historic fact, that one decisive act that secures the redemption for the people of God for all the ages becomes a present day reality in individual people's lives when they by faith come and understand and believe that Jesus died for them. At that moment, when they themselves, by faith, embrace it, the gift, it then becomes theirs. That is justification by grace defined. Secondly, justification by grace defended. Defended. And we need to defend this doctrine because this doctrine is constantly under assault. This is, Luther says, the heart of the Christian gospel, and he's right. If you don't have this, you do not have a right standing before God. This is key. This is what, this is what all of Christianity stands or falls on. Justification by grace through faith alone. So, let me give you some enemies of, the, of uh, grace this morning, if I can say it that way. Okay, Enemies of grace. Those things that are dangerous to this reality of justification by grace. i got three of them for you this morning. Here they are. First is moralism. Moralism. Moralism is the idea that a person becomes right by doing right. That we become right by doing right as opposed to doing right out of love for God. You see the difference? May we are, we are made right or we become right by doing right. It is an undue focus of attention on cleaning up the outside of the vessel, of the person, without understanding or dealing with the issues of the heart. It's working on the outside. It is morality without theology. And in the end, you have neither. Okay, You end up with neither. At its extreme... It portrays Jesus Christ and His work as that of a moral influence or a good teacher that people can then emulate. He becomes the good teacher, the, the, the prophet from God, the, the moral 
a person whom we would look to to try to emulate. Okay, that's in its extreme where moralism goes. It leads to theological liberalism. That's where it ends up if you begin to go down that track and you don't arrest your progress and reverse it. Theological liberalism based on moralism is what has devastated many, many Christian denominations, formerly Christian denominations. Methodism, Episcopalianism, Church of Christ and various Anabaptist groups have all been devastated by moralism. That is, they have lost their theological footing that justification comes by grace through faith alone. And they have slowly begun to embrace moralism, which has ultimately devastated those denominations. Now, I'm not saying there aren't believers in those denominations. Don't misunderstand me. But for the large majority of them, they have slipped into theological liberalism where now it is Jesus the good teacher. Jesus the good teacher. The religion of family values, often promoted on Christian radio, is strongly influenced by moralism. Okay? Strongly influenced by moralism. That is, there is a downplaying of theology and there is a focus on the outside cleaning up of society, culture. It encourages, because of its lack of theological footing, it encourages social and political links between evangelicals and Mormons and Roman Catholics and others whose primary concern is the recovery of Western culture, not how is a person justified before their creator. It is a dangerous place to be. Moralism can result in the church losing its focus. And what can happen is that the, the church begins to see society as our enemy rather than those we are to reach with the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Society becomes people to be avoided. Those to work against. Those who are our enemies. Those who are going to destroy our nation and that we must fight against them rather than our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers who desperately need to be reconciled with God. Moralism also can be dangerous within our homes right here in this body. And what can happen is that it can creep in as parents. When we begin to focus our instruction of our children on their external behaviors. When we become more concerned with how do they behave on the outside than we are with how are they on the inside. That is, when we work on modifying and correcting their, their sinful manifestations rather than allowing those sinful manifestations to be the vehicle by which we then talk to them about how to be right with God. That it's a heart issue, ultimately. A heart issue. As a parent, when you're big and strong and they're little and weak, you can make them do what you want them to do. You can get outward compliance. But when they grow up and then they're bigger than you and you're looking up, okay, you've lost it if you haven't reached the heart on the inside. And we know we have to reach the heart because that's the whole issue of justification. It has to come on the inside through what God does. What can happen from moralism is that Christianity can become 
all about avoiding things. That we are a Christian by avoiding bad behaviors, bad thinking, bad situations. That's what our Christianity becomes. Okay? And there's no place for the atonement of Jesus Christ. Justification before God. So moralism is a danger to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. The second enemy or danger is what I'm calling sacramentalism. Sacramentalism. There's moralism, now there's sacramentalism. What is a sacrament? A sacrament, uh, in the Latin, it comes from Latin and it means a thing set apart as sacred. A sacrament is a thing that has been set apart as sacred. In Jerome's Latin Vulgate, that is the Latin translation of the, uh, of the Bible in the 5th century, it, it translates a Greek word, mysterion, or mystery. Augustine defined a sacrament as, quote, the visible form of an invisible grace, close quote. The visible form of an invisible grace. That's a sacrament. So what is sacramentalism? Sacramentalism is the idea that we are made right through partaking of a certain religious ritual when done in faith and that that ritual conveys saving grace by virtue of the sacramental act itself. Okay? Saving grace comes to us by virtue of partaking in the sacrament. Roman Catholicism, they call this, this idea is called ex opera operato in the Latin. It means from the work done. From the work done. And so within a Roman Catholic system, the justification, the grace of justification is initiated by the baptism of the child. When the child is baptized in a properly performed Roman Catholic baptism, what then comes, according to Roman Catholic theology, is the justifying grace of God into the soul of the child. They are now made right before God because they have been baptized. And then in Roman Catholic theology, that justifying grace begins to leak out. And so it has to be replenished, it has to be reinvigorated, and that is done through the sacrament of penance. So the whole system is a sacramental system. Grace is received by the, by the uh, participation in the sacrament of baptism. It is maintained and reinforced and reinvigorated through the, the um, process of penance and mass and on and on and on. Well, what about Reformed Christianity? That's Roman Catholicism. That's sacramentalism at an extreme. What about in the Reformed camp of Christianity? How does sacramentalism work out there? Well, it doesn't work out intentionally there. Within Roman Catholicism, it's an intentional thing. Within the Reformed camp of Christianity, it's not intentional. But there's a danger that lies there nonetheless. Let me read you a quote here, just speaking about, when I say Reformed Christianity, I'm talking about uh, Presbyterianism, okay, and various other forms of Reformed Christianity. When speaking of, and they call it the sacrament of baptism and communion, they teach that the signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing, they are the signs and seals of an invisible, inward and invisible thing, by means whereof God works in people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism makes us sure of God's promises. The act of baptism is both the means of initiation into the covenant and a sign of the covenant. Now, where's the danger in all of this? 
Here's the danger. The danger is that there can be a, a, a misunderstanding that grows within those of the Reformed persuasion. And that idea of initiation into the covenant can, through baptism, can develop into an idea that it is baptism itself that confers grace to the person being baptized. That is, they can move subtly from a Reformed Christian position to a full sacramental position equivalent of Roman Catholicism. You can move to formalism and nominal Christianity. How do I know that? Well, all you have to do is look around. Look around Europe, which was heavily influenced by a Reformed perspective. What has happened to Christianity in Europe? It is a prime example of formalism. That is, the baptism of their infants into this covenant in which there was no, over time there was a slippage of an understanding that it is by grace through faith alone that we are received into the presence of God. And now the act itself becomes the means. The church becomes dead. It has its creeds. It affirms its orthodoxy, but it's dead. There's no life. It's subtle. It's dangerous. Sacramentalism is an enemy of justification by grace through faith alone. There is a third enemy. And all of these lie right at the door, seeking to undo us. This is only logical, by the way, right? If justification by grace through faith alone is the core of the gospel, where do you think the enemy will attack? Right at the core of the gospel. It's attacked through moralism. It's attacked through sacramentalism. Finally, or thirdly, it's attacked through legalism. Legalism represents an attack upon the center of the Christian gospel. Legalism is the idea that we are made right and kept right by obedience to the law. Either the law of Moses or man-made laws and traditions. Legalists believe that their right standing before God and consequently God's love for them is to some degree or another dependent upon their obedience to various rules. In its extreme form, it would be the Galatian heresy of the first century. Okay, that would be an extreme form. Eventually, legalism, it's, a, it's the path towards Phariseeism, right? The Pharisees were primary legalists. That is, they thought they were made right before God by the keeping of their minutiae, their man-made laws. Modern legalists would be Jehovah's Witnesses, various other pseudo-Christian cults that teach you are made and kept right before God based on your obedience to a set of rules. Now we reject that, don't we? Let me say amen. We reject that. Okay? We reject the notion that our obedience will save us. But we are not immune to the subtle threat of legalism that comes in through what I call performance-based Christianity. Okay? Performance-based Christianity. Let me give you an example. Suppose we have a young man here this morning in the congregation 
who he does not know Jesus Christ as his Savior. He's lost. Beyond that, he has a drug problem. All right? He has a drug addiction. And he's made a mess out of his life. But in God's grace, his eyes are opened this morning and he exercises saving faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf and he is justified before God, right? He is saved. Let's further suppose that he continues to struggle with his drug addiction for a while, but then he eventually breaks that hold in his life and he goes on to get married, have children. Later, he attends seminary. He graduates from seminary near the top of his class. After graduation, he feels the call of God on his life and he goes to the mission field and he serves for 50 years in the mission field on a front line doing, doing you know, great things for God. Question. Does God love him more at the end of his life than he did that moment sitting there in the pew when by faith he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Is he any more justified at the end than he was at that moment in time? No. No. He's not. God loves him the same here as way over here. He's just as righteous before God. His justification is just as, is, is complete and full here as it is way over here. God loves us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? All that we need and all that we receive is in Christ Jesus. It is His righteousness applied to us, not ours. Paul has said, you don't have any. It is all Christ. Does the righteousness of Christ grow from here to here? Is Jesus any more righteous yesterday than He will be tomorrow? Answer? No. No. No! Therefore, at the moment... That you place your faith in Christ and trust in His righteousness alone. You are loved by God in Christ. It is a full, complete love that can know no diminishment in any way or form, nor can it grow based on what you do. It is complete in Christ. It's huge. Does God love missionaries more than He loves others? Does God love martyrs for the faith more than He loves those that don't die for the faith? Can you do anything in your life to cause God to love you more? Can you do anything to cause Him to love you less? No. No. If you are justified this morning by the gift of grace received through faith, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've got all there is to give. You can't add to it. Nor can you diminish it. Justification by grace. Defined. Defended. 
applied. Moralism, sacramentalism, legalism, they're all ultimately expressions of a works-based righteousness, which Paul has absolutely precluded in verse 20. By the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Okay, it doesn't work. Doesn't matter how simple or how complex, it does not work. The only way it works is that it comes from God to us through faith for all by grace. So let me ask you a question this morning as I wind this down. Something for you to ponder today, this week as you go forth. Okay? Question to ponder Why do you do what you do? In the spiritual life. Why do you do what you do? Why did you come here this morning? Why? Many places you could have gone. Many things you could do. Why did you come here? What motivated you to come? Why do you give? When the offering plate was passed and you put something in it, why? Why? You pray? You sing? You read your Bible? You share the Gospel? Why? Why do you do these things? You avoid certain places and behaviors? Why? Why do you do that? The answer to that question reveals much about your understanding of the Gospel. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Because you would boast. Let's pray. Father, thank You For your grace. Because there is no other way that we could receive your righteousness. It is your gift to us. We thank you for it. We are debtors of grace. And we're happy to be that way. May you drive this truth deep into our hearts, Father, for we are a wicked people who would subtly and consistently seek to add that which could never be added in Christ alone. We have our only hope. We pray in His name. Amen. If you're with us this morning for the first time, I want to extend my welcome to you as well. Glad you're here. Maybe it's your first day or maybe it's not and but you've got some questions about spiritual things you want resolved. Maybe you don't really understand how do I receive this gift? Pastor, I've heard you say over and over again, it's a gift to be received by faith, but I'm still a little confused as to how that works. We would love to straighten out your confusion. We've got some folks that will be over here by this lighted cross after the service. You'll come and you'll talk with them. They'll open the Word of God with you and they can show you just exactly how you can receive the gift of eternal life. 
Others perhaps have questions about the church, baptism, membership. You're not sure who to ask, how to ask. It's a great place and time to come. Just come on down afterwards and we'll take care of your questions, okay? God bless you.